how cold the air can be, how he can be lost so quickly through the window of opportunity, just like a draft in the night. See how words can twist and hands can ring like phones inside empty homes when nobody's there to hear. Okay, you guys. Hi, this is Richard Sachs. I'm your host on Lost Arts Radio. We have a great um, discussion with a, a guest who's been here quite a few times before, Dr. Bill Warner. And I want to just give you a couple of ideas of where our discussion's starting. You know, I'm not sure what date you may be listening to this on, but we've got this election in the United States coming up. Normally, it's not as big of a deal as the presidential election, but this particular time, it may be bigger than most previous presidential elections. Because it may have a big uh, amount to say about determining the course of the U.S. and, by extension, much of the world, based on what's about to happen. And, you know, Dr. Warner is an expert in Islam, and he's the one who showed me how to learn uh, what it was all about and to read the three different scriptures, the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and get it right from, from the source rather than from commentators and even imams and other scholars and people that had expert opinions. It was better to get the opinion of uh, Muhammad and Allah, who seem to be the two most important people who really have defined what it's about. And the reason that that subject about Islam comes up in respect to the uh, upcoming election is that I've noticed, and a lot of people have other, in other areas of the country have noticed, that there are... are uh, Muslim candidates running for offices all the way from local up to congressional and Senate seats and things like that. And I want to make it really clear before we start, um, I really like Muslim people as and everybody else, too. I mean, I'm not against any group like that, religious group. We're not talking about races because anybody can be Muslim or almost any other religion that I can think of it. You could have Muslims in any part of the world, and I like them as people. Um, I love all of them, even if they're really confused and doing crazy things. But the reason that they may be doing really dangerous type crazy things, and the reason we're putting these two subjects together of the election and the religion of Islam is that in the scriptures that I read, for any of us that want to become really good Muslims, part of the religious requirement for reaching paradise and avoiding hell, which they explain is a really good idea to do uh, in, in detail. Um, to, be, to follow the full religion, you must assist, or at least not get in the way of, jihad, which is not only the inner struggle with yourself, but it's the outer struggle to take over the rest of the world, because God clearly wants um, everybody in the world to be either Muslim and we'll ask our guest if I'm being accurate here, or a slave of a Muslim. Those are the two acceptable categories. Everybody else has to have died. And that's a basic core of the religion. You can't just pray and expect to get full credit without helping with jihad. You, that makes a, a big difference. Whether you want to be political or not, it's part of the belief system. So I've noticed Muslim candidates, for example, in my local area for Senate, 
And it was a lady, and she was saying, and I believe in keeping religion completely separate from politics. So, in other words, don't worry, I'm not going to do anything that you wouldn't like. And I wrote twice to her office and said, oh, that's a great idea, except, you know, because we have freedom of religion and everything. But what about if the religion says part of the belief is that you have to take over every other country in the world and their government and then kill everybody who doesn't convert? What about that? And I guess she didn't have time to write back. But that, that's kind of the start. It's a reason for the concern, not become as of disliking anybody who is Muslim, but because of looking carefully at what the scriptures say and what that implies for candidates in any country that hasn't yet become 100% Muslim. So that's where we're starting and where it goes, we'll see. So welcome, Dr. Warner, and thanks for taking the time. Richard, I would agree with everything you said. Uh, I'm surprised the lady didn't get back to you, but there's one tweak we could put to it. Uh, there's a special status for the non-Muslim, which is that of the DHIMMI, D-H-I-M-M-I. Now, originally, this occurred only for Jews, Christians, and Zoroastrians. Now, the Quran lays all this out, but even though the Quran claims to be a universal document by the one creator God of the universe, oddly enough, it doesn't contain any information that doesn't go beyond Muhammad's horizon. And so once Islam started conquering, they wound up with a problem once they got to uh, India. And that was this. They were winning, but strictly speaking, what the Quran says is you can either convert or die. Right. right. Well, this was not very useful. So what they did was, is they stretched in some way that since the Hindus had some writings, that they could be included under the people of the book. So they had to expand the definition of Demi, those who serve Islam without being Muslim, to include that just for the simple practical thing of running an empire. So anyway, that would be the only tweak. But uh, I think what you've done is very interesting. As a background to the listening audience, I did a video called um, Muslim Candidates, in which I said that this was a good thing that we could have Muslim candidates. And Richard says, why don't we do a video of this? And so that's how we wound up at this stage. But uh, what you did there, by the way, was to try to broach or breach censorship criteria, which we have now in our country, which is you're not supposed to say or do things. And my little video, what I was saying was, look, like I'm heavily censored on the web, heavily censored. And so what happens is with an election, you can ask any question about anything and it cannot be censored, which you illustrated with your writing her a message. And so that's what is the background of doing this talk today is, and a conversation is a better word, is that we need to explore how Muslim candidates can be actually useful and how to learn about Islam. Right. Now, one of the things when you say that can't be censored, um, technically that's true, but the um, social, big social media companies are just censoring people whether they can or not, right? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> But you can always show up at the political candidates' gatherings, okay? Yeah. If they, yeah. If they show up in public, you can show there, too. So that's what I mean. We can, we can uh, leap over the wall of censorship we have now. Oh, okay. And, uh, okay. And, and, and by the way, Richard, one of the most painful things to me in seeing my civilization kind of get weak in the knees and is to, to not fully support freedom of speech. Because to me, it's not just a political right, Richard. It's, let's call it a spiritual right. It's a human right to be able to just, what's your opinion? And uh, I, had a, I have a wonderful friend who is from India, and he moved here about 40 years ago. 
And he said the most amazing thing about America to him was not the beauty of the women and how rich and wealthy America was. Now, he was living in, at this time, Manhattan. But he said Americans would just tell you what they thought to a complete stranger. And he said, I was stunned because he said, as a Hindu, we never tell you what we think. We tell you what you need to hear. And he said, Americans would just tell you what they thought. And he says, I couldn't believe, uh, VJ is a very rational man. And so he, he delighted in this because it meant you could argue and debate and talk to each other. But what? he said, the bad news is this. Yeah. Today I hasten to tell you that America is becoming Hinduized. Well, I was going to ask you, what, what in the Hindu religion, if you know about it, is stopping them from just saying whatever they think? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't want to get off into that. But uh, anyway, I just thought it was interesting that his biggest impression of America was, what do you think? I'll tell you yeah. anything you want to know. He and liked it. Now he sees that contracting. And, and political correctness, ah, drives me nuts. Yeah. Well, you said, you said that it was kind of a spiritual right to say what you, whatever you wanted to say. Um, and the founders of, of America agreed, I, th I think, with that because they said, we're not giving you the right to free speech. You've already got it from God. Precisely. That is, it is a divine right. And I, by the way, if you lose that, all the other rights that we have don't mean anything. Right, right. And remember that you're not losing the right. You're just being punished if you try to exercise it. Excellent point. Excellent point. The right is always there. It's just how much abuse and punishment do you want to uh, say? Uh, I remember now what, under the days of Stalin and, uh, and others in the Soviet Empire, there came a whole literature form called Samizdat, I believe it is, which was handwritten or hand-typed novels that got passed around. And uh, this illegal literature, it, I sometimes look at that and go, you know, maybe I should rename my... Instead of politicalislam.com, it should be samas.com because I'm beginning to write things which, well, let's take it as an example. I'm being censored on Amazon. Now, you would think Amazon being effectively a bookstore right. and also a book printer, that they would be really keen on the concept of write a book about it and whatever. But I'm now being censored. I'll give you an example with this. Before the Southern Poverty Law Center said that I was one of America's top ten racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobes, one word, my book, Sharia Law for Non-Muslims, was a bestseller on Sharia law. That was like, that was really pleasing to me, by the way. It was like, whoa, bestseller. But now then, it's, not, it's barely a seller at all. Because what happens when you search for things for Sharia, my books are pushed way down to the bottom of the list, and you have to scroll through pages to find them. Right. So anyway, we're being censored, and I see elections as a way to sort of break through that barrier of censorship. In person, though, is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Because you try to put something in the New York Times about the election, it's not going to get very far. Well, but you might live agree. in a smaller town where they'll publish it in your paper in a letter to the editor. It's, okay. Look, I'm looking for any bright light I can run towards, Richard. I know. I'm, I'm in favor of that. I, I, I even tried to talk to the editor in our town, and he said, well, yeah, but we need your home address to let everybody know where you live, number one. And number two, we need, we reserve the right to make sure it's in good taste and anything that's not in good taste, we can alter. Well, good taste is a broad subject there, but 
I'm not having, by the way, looking at my inbox on my email system, I would have a little sympathy there because I sometimes get some emails in which you're like, uh, dude, I'm glad we're not publicizing this. That's yeah, not the way I talk. Well, the other thing that you said about uh, free speech being a right, you know, even if you are being abused for exercising it, what the American founder said is that, for example, everybody in communist China has total free speech as much as anywhere else. Every yes. Muslim has total free speech. They just may get punished for using it. Exactly. But I think they have the human right, the spiritual right, call it what you want to. But I mean, I mean, we're talking about our very existence here, Richard. I mean, if you cannot share the privacy of your thoughts with those whom you want to communicate, I mean, what sort of life are we living? Yeah, hopefully we're not going to find out. I th- well, this, same, is, same, this same is true. <laughs> and as you know, I'm a, by the way, let me give you a little, since we're talking about politics and free speech, a bit of bad yeah. news came down my way today. Or was it yesterday? The European Court of Human Rights, uh, Elizabeth Savage Wolf, had given some lectures on Islam. And in these lectures, she mentioned that Muhammad married Aisha when she was six and consummated the marriage when she was nine. And she said, basically, that's what we call a pedophile. Well, she was sued and fined for that. And then they took it to the highest court in Europe about this. And the court in Europe says, well... Yes, there is such a thing as free speech, but you know, we have to temper that with we cannot offend religious sensibilities. Whoa, whoa. And they said, you know, for, to maintain religious harmony, which is an interesting phrase for them to use, basically what they said was, we're afraid this will cause riots if we don't do it. Okay? And they even didn't call Muhammad by his name Muhammad. They said the prophet of Islam. So here we have the European court Agreeing on two things. We're afraid of riots. And the other is, Muhammad is a prophet. Well, that's half of the Shahada. The other half is, there is no God but Allah. So I'm like, whoa, I don't think they understood what they were doing here. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. So anyway, poor Elizabeth got fined another 500 euros. The amount of money is not as important. What is important here is, is that the damper is being put on free speech in Europe. Yeah, that was one of those hate facts that you were talking about, I guess, right? Oh, those pesky hate facts. (laughs) Now, luckily, they did not forbid the study of the Hadith. They didn't go that far. Anyway, here's the way I handle this kind of thing, and I've taught my students this for a long time. I do not say that Muhammad was a pedophile. What I say is, in Bukhari the Hadith, we have Muhammad marrying Aisha when she was six and consummating the marriage when she was nine. Stop. My audience can easily draw all the conclusions they need from that information. I don't say, I don't make any judgment. I do this with all my material. I say Muhammad participated in 95 acts of jihad in nine years of his life, the last nine years of his life. I don't say that's good. I don't say that's bad. I say it was effective. What I do is I present the facts, but I never criticize and I never condemn and I never call names. So... My method of speaking about this, if Elizabeth had known this, would not have gotten her into trouble. Exactly. And I think you can still carry on all the information you need. Yeah, well, we've been trying to really stay, you know, allowed to speak on social media up to now, and I've just been watching for keywords that AI has programmed to look for. Oh, did you see where Gab got thrown off the web? Yeah, that and they got thrown off PayPal as well. See, I don't... I'm not an attorney, but I don't see how... See, I've been hassled by MasterCard. 
Spencer's been hassled by MasterCard. Right. Uh, Front Page Magazine has been hassled by MasterCard. I don't see how that's interfering with commerce. And I right. don't understand why a what's well, sort of a, a web banking system. I don't know what you'd call credit cards, how they fit into banking, but it appears to me this is just a common business function. Now, if you violate the terms of agreement, no problem. But we're not violating the terms of, of, uh, agree, of agreement. I got a letter, registered letter from a uh, copyright attorney in Manhattan, which said that I must immediately take down the logo of MasterCard on my website. And I'm like, well, okay, I can still use MasterCard. But oh. it was the, uh, I'm still waiting for the next letter to crop up, which says, no, you can't even use MasterCard at all. Right. How, how, how can it be legal? If you yeah, go to a bank sure. and they say, you know, we don't like the books you write, you can't open an account here, that wouldn't work. Well, what they do on social media is say you violated the terms of service, and that's a thousand pages that no one understands. And it turns out, even if you try to understand it, there's just, it, it turns off, it gets off into like hate speech. Richard, yeah. tell me what is hate speech? I hate child marriage. Is that hate speech? Yeah. In fact, anything you say once you're defined as a hate speech person is hate speech. You do know I have an official capacity as a hater. I'm not yeah, an I heard that you got certified by SPLC or something. Yes, Southern Poverty Law Center says that I am a bigot. At one time, <laughs> you've gotten to know me about this much through the interviews. I was <laughs> the Southern Poverty Law Center was I was one of America's ten biggest bigots. Wow. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, making making the top ten in anything is pretty good. It's just yeah. When I was young, they said I'd grow up to be a nobody, and here I am, one of the top ten. <laughs> top ten, though. You know, they're just redefining language, and um, hate speech. Don't is underestimate that. I'm not at all. I think it's really powerful. One thing they're doing now to try to get rid of the current president is say, "Oh my God, he used the N word, nationalism." Oh. <laughs> you caught me there for a moment. Really? Yeah, he said. He the commentator on CNN said, "Wow, did you hear what he just said?" He said, "I'm a nationalist," and that I mean, has, that a, has a hate changing the language. I have a better term since whoever thought that nationalism would be a bad term. I'm a localist. I want yeah, government to be close to me. That's I don't want probably even I, worse. I respect I mean, the United Nations entirety. I don't even like the federal government. I like to bring it home to the state government and even better, the county government. Right. What this means is, for instance, I would get rid of the Department of Education because why can't education be determined by me locally? Well, see, then you're obviously an anarchist and that's a terrorist. <laughs> okay. That's a good try, yeah. though. <laughs> but, I mean, they were really doing this presentation of how terrible nationalism was. And they said it's a favorite term of the alt-right which is a term invented by Hillary Clinton. And um, it's got serious racial and anti-Semitic undertones. And uh, only the really bad people ever use that term. So if you're in the, from the Congo and you like the, you like the Congolese people, does that right. a form of racism, nationalism? I mean, I'm not sure here. Uh, no, it's, just, if, it's mostly against people with light skin. If you have oh. dark skin, it's probably more, it's a deeper understanding that it's okay. You know, when I was a boy, I worked outside in a farm, because I was on a farm, I worked outside, and I, my skin got to be very, very dark. Would, right. If I could do that again, would that change who I am in terms of what words I could say, do you think, Richard? If I just, or yeah. maybe just a, or maybe one of those spray-on tans. Yeah, I think I would change the whole thing. <laughs> 
And if you could get, well, uh, I'm going to get myself thrown off this network, but I was just thinking if you could be a little less clear about whether you're a man or a woman, that would really help you a lot, too. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, can I confess this on the air? I'm a raging heterosexual. Hmm, that's racist. (laughs) I don't think it's going to (laughs) help. Anyway, well, say I have I have an inner I uh, I have an inner raging lesbian. How about that? That'll help you a lot, actually. That'll help me a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I mean, I didn't mean to get us off on an irrelevant tangent here, but I think that the, we're talking about free speech. It's not irrelevant to that. And there are certain groups that have freer speech than other groups. By the way, when I, I was I'm not only am I a raging heterosexual, I'm a white Southern male. How about that? I think I just fell off the negative end of. No wonder you got certified in the top ten. I mean that. <laughs> that was, you're beginning to understand what my qualification. But, anyway, but, part of, go ahead. <laughs> part of the thing I was educated as in growing up in a small farm community of about 200 people was how to be tough. Not only yeah. tough not to complain about manual labor. That is, if you're out hauling hay. Whining didn't cut it. Right. Part of being a man was to be able to work hard and not complain. But there was also another toughness which we were taught. You had to be able to be the butt of a joke. You had to be able to take an insult. And as a consequence, actually, if you could insult somebody, this was a sign of, and you, he would mutually insult you, this was a, a, an indication of you were really good friends. Wow. Okay. So there was a certain toughness that we had. And what we have today is, instead of training people to be tough, we train them to be easily offended. Yeah, you learn that really well in the universities, most of them these days, too. Well, here's a weirdness. This has to do with freedom of speech. When I went off to the university, I grew up, I just told you, in a very small town. And uh, there was one traffic light in the entire county. I mean, that's how small it was. Okay. So I went off to college hoping to meet new ideas which I did not understand and might even offend me. Right, right. This was, there was a certain excitement in learning about new stuff. But I didn't say, well, I don't like that, and I don't want it taught in the university. I was just like, well, I don't care for that at all, thank you. I'm not at all persuaded by your arguments for socialism or whatever it was. So, but I was trained to be tough, and today they're, they're, people are trained to be losers, victims. yeah. And, well, uh, there's there's two groups. One has to be the victim. The other one has to has to kill the person that insulted them. So right. you really need them both to have a good balance there. I guess so. But anyway, freedom. I think I see politics can be a place where we still have some hope of freedom of speech. Although what happens is, as you know, is is if you speak too freely, the media will be all over you like white on rice. And what they say about you doesn't address the facts. You see, that's the other thing is, is I'm real keen on facts. And they're like, well, wait a minute. Those facts offend people. And then you're into hate facts, which is 1984. Yeah, it is. How many times have you heard this? 1984 was a prophetic book or he just got the date wrong. Yeah, exactly. And how many years ago was 1984 now? That was quite a few. Yes. And when he wrote it, it was meant to, it was kind of like, Oh, this would never happen. Exactly. Well, it's happening in spades. It's amazing. Yeah. And is that a racist remark? It's happening in spades. Oh, that is racist. Yeah, but it's That's expected from again. someone. Darn. Uh, credentials. <laughs> so, 
Richard is getting harder and harder not to be a racist. You know, what I mean, I know. maybe even breathing oxygen is racist. I don't know. I think there's a small number of words that are left that are safe. But um, you mentioned the problem with the media, if you spoke too freely. The, the major media that we've got in the U.S. now, and, and I think this is true in a lot of Europe and other countries like that, is um, I'm probably in Australia, too. It It's owned, it's wholly owned by a small handful of global corporations that are all in It's very bad. Right? And they have no obligation to tell the truth about anything. They have an obligation to say what the people they work for want them to say. And they do By that. the way, I knew a f- man whose daughter went off to journalism school. In the old days, because since we're talking about media, in the old days, journalism school taught there's, it's a fight. It, and it's amazing how many things can be characterized by just saying that. It's, it's a struggle or a fight or an argument. Report both sides. But instead now, what they teach in journalism school is your job is to improve the world. You know what is true and good. You need to give that priority and suppress that which is negative and bad. So that is a journalism student now is being taught in at least some journalism schools is it's got nothing to do with the facts of the matter, which would include both sides of the argument. What it has to do is, is that you're a social justice warrior. You're a person of virtue who is improving the world. What I want is, I don't want you to improve the world. I want you to tell me exactly what's being argued about, about putting in a new shopping center or whatever it is. Yeah, but that would, the facts. that would be the real way to improve the world, though. So you would still be improving the world, even if you were totally honest. Okay. I think the only thing wrong with that is they define what improving the world is. Ah, well, there is that little thing, isn't there? Yes. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that was really, that's why it, tricks so many people it sounds good i mean well, improving the world is really good you know you're right if it's but if it may sound good yes particularly on the first bite but i think we ought to be able to argue about it even if it sounds good or not yeah yeah but, and, you know, and right you're now, right no one are, no one says this is really a terrible idea i want to talk to you about it. it's always like no it's always the right idea yeah which would be okay as long as you don't have to uh, agree with it that's the point. I don't, Richard, I don't care what your views, well, I do a little way care what your views are. I mean, there's so much I'm like, mm, I, we'd be better off if you didn't think that way. But right. nevertheless, look, I have good, good friends who do not vote the way I do. And I do not see that as a reason to break our friendship. My wife grew up in a house in which her father was a Republican and her mother was a Democrat. When you tell that to people today, I've known of people who met, broke off a first date when they found out who you voted for in politics. I don't, no, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I don't even want to know who you are. Right. Right. It's, it's really evolved to a different place. And I think this has been engineered because the way the media acts now in service to their owners is to move people into violent conflict, basically, and division. I see that happening all over. Well, there was an election campaign yesterday. Uh, with Marsha Blackburn, who's running for Senate, I believe it is. And uh, if I get that wrong, I'll be corrected later. But anyway, a whole bunch of people who opposed her showed up and started yelling and screaming and fighting and yelling insults at her on the stage. That's not what I call a proper exercise of free speech necessarily, particularly if it gets physical. Yeah. I can see I've, I've booed somebody from an audience myself. Can I confess that? But yes. I didn't try to grab a hold of them and do something like that. 
Right, right, right. And in some of the cities now, not just the media, but police departments in certain cities are ordered to let people inflict terrible violence on uh, views that they don't agree with. And that's well, being supported. I sat and watched in amazement in Portland, Oregon. That's Antifa. the city I was thinking of, yeah. Is it Antifa or Antifa? Uh, I guess you have your choice. I, I've heard Antifa. Potato, potato. Anyway, Antifa, we'll, we'll, we'll just go with Alan. Yeah. You know, they commandeered the street and wound up hitting a man who's 74 years old and, and bashing his car simply because he wasn't following in their, their commandeered street directions. Yeah, exactly. And then an- another car showed up from South Carolina, and they started yelling, we don't need your KKK. <laughs> Talk about bigotry. You mean everybody in South Carolina is a member of the KKK? I guess they are, yeah. Oh, well, by the way, let me confess something to you. I grew up in the South. I told you that earlier. That's my yeah. true confession. Right. Now, I grew up in the South, went to school in the South. I never met anybody from the KKK, ever. And yet, if you read the media, you would think that there was one, there was a KKK member behind every third tree or something. I know. I never saw something with so much PR and so little physical presence. Wasn't it Charlottesville where they said that those people holding the demonstration were all members of the KKK or, or something similar to it? And then they interviewed the leader of it, and he had actually worked for um, Obama, I think it was, for a long time and was, uh, you know, just filling the role that was needed for the news. Well, I've, I've been called a racist on what terms. I'm not sure because as a hippie, I took part in the civil rights movement. I taught for eight years at a black university, and some or another, my racism snuck past the sensitive censors there. But now then that I write about Islam, I'm a racist. Yeah. Because you do know Islam is a race. You do understand that. Um, I'm still having trouble absorbing that. You know, so if you would just convert, you'd become a different race. Yeah, yeah, it's the easiest way to do that, actually. <laughs> but does that mean an apostate who leaves Islam? Are they now have they changed their race? Is that what yeah. that means? Yeah, they're probably a racist just by doing that. <laughs> but one thing that that comes up in my mind, since you know, I really thought your video was great on looking at all aspects of the upcoming election from the point of view of different religious approaches. Is there any way that, see, I have really good friends who are Muslim, and of course none of them follow what's in the scriptures of, of Islam, but they're really good people and they are Muslim. Would it, how would they safely run for an office, because they would do a good job, and they wouldn't be pushing Sharia, how could they ever show that they would be a good candidate? Well... What I would say is, will you, if you choose some aspect of Islam that you do not agree with, either in the Quran or Muhammad, and ask them if they would abjure and condemn that. Okay, okay. In other words, risk their lives. Well, I'm, you're running for office here. This is, uh, an, I think, see, that's the thing I say the beauty of talking to political candidates is, you can ask them how they feel about feline distemper if you want to, just made that up. That is, if you're running for office and you're standing in the public forum, then I say it's a free fire zone. And if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. So this is, if you can meet them in person, then you can ask these questions. Yes. You could also write to their campaign office just to see what would happen there. Yeah, I did uh, try that. Right. 
But anyway, that to me is a critical question. Will you abjure or condemn or reject what, let's say, when Muhammad yeah, like, married a, a six-year-old and consummated it at nine? Well, or, or that everybody who is in, accused of stealing something has to have their hands cut off. Well, now, that only is if there's a certain amount of value to it. It's if, uh, and oh. by the way, if you steal something and it's for, because you're hungry, you can, there, there's, some, there's a little leeway there. So it's not as absolute. But nevertheless, I think it's, if we could ask a, a Muslim candidate or if it's a Catholic, ask him about anything else you want to. If you're running for office, it's a free fire zone. Right. And I think we should use that to our advantage. So it's a real tricky point. I mean, what this kind of comes down to is that in America, part of the uh, Bill of Rights is, is freedom of religion and that you're not supposed to be stopped from practicing whatever religion you want, which I think is great. But they didn't, they apparently, it never occurred to them, what if I have a religion that requires that I take over your country? I don't think they thought of that. I don't think so either. Although they did do some thinking about Islam, Jefferson and Adams had a much clearer view of Islam than we can have even in our world today. As a matter of fact, I gave a talk in Chicago and a man came up to me after the talk and said, I read one of your books three years ago and realized that everything that I'd done in the military was an absolute loss. He says, I was supposed to be an interrogator in Afghanistan. He says, they told me nothing about Islam, and everything they told me about Islam was a lie. He said, once I read your books, I realized that what I was participating in was a catastrophe. So, what I'm, the, my point is, if, if Adams or Jefferson had been president today, he would have been able to ask good questions about his, the captors that he had, because he would understand Islam for the basis of questioning. It's a really interesting exercise to think, what if things were openly looked at and you saw right in, you know, part of the things that get you into paradise is deceiving and invading and overtaking a country and replacing its laws with Sharia law. And that's right in what you do to avoid hell and go to paradise. What would, a, you know, a wise court or somebody like that decide about how that interacts with freedom of religion? Well, not well, but it's amazing how little critical, as I, when I was younger, I thought that judges were wise men who applied the law of the land. Too many times now I see that what happens is, is they apply the law of what their feelings are. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what would happen today. By the way, in Illinois, there's been uh, a member, uh, we now have Muslim jurists as well. We have Muslim jurists in the state of New York. Now, just so people know, a jurist is a judge, not a member of a jury. Yes. Right? So, Good point. Good yes. point. I'm glad you said that. So there are people who are judges now who are Muslim, and they are religiously required to put Sharia over the Constitution. See, now that we're getting into a very interesting interview that I would love to do with these people, you know, like, which way do you, which way do you cut it? I mean, which is higher? The Article 6 of the Constitution says that for legal purposes in the United States, the Constitution is the highest level of laws. But the Sharia says, ah, not so fast there, American boy. Right. Sharia is. And so what I would like to see, and I don't think this has been done, I don't think judges have been asked difficult questions here about where, if you're a Muslim, exact, 
exactly where you're going to come down on divorce cases. Where are you going to come down on, say, if someone shows up in your court who has the appearance of being beaten as a wife, which laws do you apply? If she's wearing a hijab, do you apply Sharia laws, in which case he has the right to beat you? Or right. if you're applying the laws of our, of our society, he has no right to beat you. And I think we need these questions need to be asked. And I don't know of anywhere they're being asked, Richard. People are just sort of like, there's a, uh, we have a peculiar cancer of what I call the cancer of nice, in which we don't want to offend people. As a matter of fact, as a white Southern male, I'm not supposed to offend anybody under any circumstances. Well, you can't, just by your existence, you're offending most people, but. Well, there is that, I suppose. Unless you. It's amusing to me. Richard, it's interesting to be a 77-year-old man who causes fear. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Terror. So, you know, if you had a jurist at a high enough level in the courts and say somebody sues someone else for leaving Islam and it gets into your court, I think that would be really interesting. Let's do this. Let's say that you sign a contract as a truck driver, that you're going to work for a company and you'll haul what goods you're given to haul. Your job is to get from A to B safely following the rules and regulations. But what if you then say, ah, this truck contains vodka, I won't haul it. And therefore, I'm going to sue you in court and say that you're violating my rights as a Muslim if I have to drive a truck that has liquor in it. Well, wait a minute. You signed a contract when you came on with the company that you would do just whatever that is. You don't even have to touch it. This isn't a matter of your drinking it. This is simply a matter of you're driving a truck and the doors are sealed and you're hauling it down the road. So I would wonder how a Muslim judge would rule on that. I would love to know that too. What if the what if the truck had pork in it? What if the Similar truck had what? Pork in it, you know. Pork in it. Well, it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, what what difference does it make if you're if you're a truck driver? Just drive the truck. You don't have to well, sleep with the pigs you say or eat that pigs or drink the vodka or anything else. Just drive the truck. But what would what would the judge say? Well, no, yeah. you don't have any. When you try to say that you when you fired him because he wouldn't haul the vodka. Then now, then you have to, and I'm co- I'm quoting an actual case here, that company had to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars to Muslims because they tried to get them to fulfill the terms of their contract, which was to drive the truck. Right, right, exactly. But didn't you say that in the scriptures themselves, it has different requirements for you as a good Muslim, whether you're in a Muslim country or one that has not yet been taken over? Well. One of the things that's interesting is about the Islamic scriptures is, is that Muhammad repeatedly advocated deception if it would advance Islam, or even if it would do well in a business deal in some cases. There's a case of this. So, what are we going to do here? I mean, if one of the names, God says that I'm the greatest of deceivers. Well, this, this immediately gets me a little queasy here. If you're a Muslim, if you follow the Quran, your God is a deceiver. And if you follow the Hadith, Muhammad was a deceiver and recommended it where, where possible if it would advance Islam. This is what I dislike about Islam is, is that it introduces this trust factor about like, when you're telling me this, are you telling me this as a strict Muslim? Or are you telling me this as a human being who's just, you see... While I'm saying things I don't like about Islam, one of the things I also don't like is that there are 12 verses which says that a Muslim is never the true friend of a kafir. Right. Well, I don't like that. I think that's, I mean, 
it introduces this thing. Can we talk about this? I guess is what I like to say, because I mean, I mean, Richard, if I found out from you that you were lying about me and smearing my character when I wasn't around, I'd say no more interviews. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't. Right. But I don't get that vibe from you, nor do I believe you will or do. Right. Yeah, it, I th- I keep coming back to freedom of religion, unalienable freedom of religion, according to the Bill of Rights, and they never thought that of a case where, well, what if your religion is that you know you have to do something illegal that really should be illegal, that is violence against other people? Are you free to do that because of freedom of religion? Here's where. It was the day after 9-11 when I started thinking about my life changed with 9-11 because I'd already been studying Islam. Remember I told you I taught in a black university and uh, there were many Muslim students. And so I began to interact with them. And uh, one in particular, a Shia, was keen on converting me. And I love to discuss anything with anybody. And so we would talk about Islam. But so I enjoy the study of it, but I also just wonder... It leaves me uncertain if, if, if you're, and I think the answer to this is, is just to simply discuss this with a Muslim. Like, there are these 12 or 13 verses which say you're not really my friend and I can't trust you. What do you say to that? That would be really interesting. You know, before I originally got you on the show, I had gone to a lot of um, well-known Muslims asking them to come on. I thought they would be really great giving an inside view of the whole thing. Seems like a great idea. Yeah, not one of them would agree, which I thought was strange. Really? Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, I've debated with Muslims, and uh, which, by the way, is a terrific indoor sport. Right. Uh, There's a certain, when you do this, there's a certain nervousness on my part because I realize we're now walking the tightrope. And my chances for mistakes are absolutely zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, I kind of like it because my chance, it, it puts you at perfect poise. That is, you have to be dead on. You really have to pay uh, attention. Yeah. So you, you, you can't lose your balance. But to do so is uh, an interesting thing because sometimes I, I've had them just look me straight in the face and absolutely lie to me and just say, you just lied to me. You just lied. I've never met you, but you just lied to me. Right. The first time that happened, I was stunned. I was real big on being told to tell the truth. What was worse was I was being was told to tell the truth, even if it offends other people. Do you remember what you were talking about when that happened? No, I do not. This was. I've been talking in public on this subject now since 2006. So there's a lot of. I've seen a lot of audiences, Richard, a lot of audiences. What was the response of the person when you said that wasn't true? They never, they just changed the subject. I've never had a Muslim say, you're right. Never, ever. And so you just, so it's just, well, okay. uh, They move along to the next subject. By the way, they give trainings and teachings, the Muslim Brotherhood, on how to debate about Islam. Uh, these people are very good. And by the way, in politics, the thing that concerns me is, is they'll be very successful. Muslims are a political animal, and I don't think that any one of them would be offended by my saying that. They're very good at politics. For one thing, 
one of the things I was raised as, as a child was to be independent and strong on my own. But if you're a Muslim, you're told to be and trained to be part of the Ummah. So the idea of politics, group decision making and working together as a group is, just comes like natural to them. And so therefore, the, this is a field in which they'll be very prosperous at. And the other thing they'll have is money. Richard, if I would convert to Islam and run for uh, office here in Tennessee, mm-hmm. you have a war chest as much as you want. Wow. This is something that one of the forms of jihad is to use money. Right. The Quran's very clear on this. It's very clear that the person who gives the money to buy the horse for the jihad gets the same reward in heaven as does the man who is the jihadist with the sword. The one so who's going to ride the see horse. how if yeah. you have this tradition, it carries forward very easily and very nicely into politics. And so, therefore, giving money to a politician who's running for office as a Muslim is a religious act. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that, that's what... As well as a political it, act. That's what makes it so powerful, I think, is that if it was only political and not religious, people could do it or not, it wouldn't be a really big deal, but if it's going to get you into paradise and avoid hell, that's a whole different thing. That's, and, a, very, that's a very powerful motivator. Yeah. So, therefore, it's not just simply your civic duty to vote, it is your religious duty to vote, and I think with a lot of people, the religious duty outranks the civil. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So, Out of fear, if nothing else. Yes. Don't do it. Exactly. So, I, I keep coming back to this question. Say there's this great person. Well, you already answered, I guess. If there's this really great person who's a Muslim who wants to run for office and convince everybody else that they're not going to get rid of the Constitution and, and all the laws that have, have come from it and put in Sharia law, there's really nothing they can say because from what you said about deception being acceptable and good if it's only used against Kafirs, it doesn't matter what they say. See, that's, see, that's, that's what I dislike about the whole piece of business. I mean, in spite of the fact that the Southern Poverty Law Center says I'm a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, I mean, Richard, I'm really a nice guy. If you're my neighbor, I'll help you. If your car breaks down, I'll, 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 I have jumper cables in the car. I'll help you start your car. I mean, contrary to what the Southern Poverty Law Center is, I'm actually a decent kind of guy. Yeah, And I so I treat other people in a decent way. I don't backstab you. I don't, I'm not going to steal your stuff if you leave it out on the lawn or whatever it is. So to be treated in this manner is is not being able to, how much can I trust you and believe you? Gosh, it just makes it harder, Richard. And I, and it's very difficult to work this out. Yeah. So as a result, actually, well, the way I work it out is, is that if I were working with a Muslim, I would probably never invite you to my house. I might work with you in the workplace and be decent to you, but I would never try to deepen the relationship. That's if you are really a good Muslim. But there's a lot of Muslims in America, at least, that don't follow compliant. anything in there. They don't follow the scriptures. See, if you don't follow the scriptures, I'm good with that. Great. So fast during Ramadan, go to the Hajj, but although that's a lot of work if you're not really faithful. You see, it, it, another word we could use here, perhaps, is how devout you are. The Which more you devout can, you yeah. are, the less you can be my friend. The less devout you are, right. the more you can be my friend. Do you see the argument here? 
Yeah, and how do you tell the difference? See, that's the problem. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean... Uh, I mean, the only way I tell the difference is, is if people are just being really great people and they're helping me in ways they don't have to and they're speaking honestly and, you know, it just has the feeling of a, a really good relationship, you, you tend to naturally start trusting it. Exactly. Exactly. And look... There is a guy who I know who is uh, an Egyptian Christian and who's, who's done his own translation, Osama Dakduk. He's, uh, he says, the reason that most Muslims leave Islam, someone did a study on this. That is, I know how they did the study. These are Christians who are now Christian. They used to be Muslim. So they did a survey. Why did you leave Islam and come into Christianity? Okay. What their first step was, was learning what the Quran actually said and who Muhammad actually was and what he said and did. 88% of them who left Islam found out who Muhammad was and who Allah was, and they said, I'm out. So it wasn't so much what they chose instead. It was that they found out they weren't comfortable with what they were doing. Now, they were comfortable with their Islam until they found out what the whole thing was. They say, that's silly. Everybody knows what the whole thing was. Most Muslims are not scholars of Islam. Most Muslims are orthopractic. That is, they have a practice which can be seen in public. And as long as that public is, as long as you're doing the right thing in public, no one asks any deeper questions. You listen to the part of the Quran that the Imam speaks about, and you don't indulge reading Bukhari or any of these other people. You don't indulge reading the Sirah. So you're left with the Islam that is fed to a child. But if you sit down and start looking and saying, what does this really say here? It's like, many, well, many of them reject it. Right. And as a matter of fact, there's, I know of two different trainings on how to convert Muslims, and the first thing they tell the, the Christian is, these are both Christian trainings, is don't preach Jesus. Don't talk about the gospel. Instead, talk about Muhammad and talk about the Quran. And, and not in a disparaging manner. No, just, no, 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 no. Just factual. Just yeah. factual. Muhammad did this. Muhammad said that. And uh, I know of a man who does, who is a former Shia from Iraq, and he, can, he has converted hundreds of Muslims to Christianity by just using my little book, The Life of Muhammad. And he's in America, right? He's in America. Well, he's, he's one of these very cosmopolitan, he has... I think a Iraqi citizenship. I think he has a some European Czech citizenship, and he travels frequently to America. So he's, I guess. But, but I mean, this could be dangerous to do in Iraq. I would think, right? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But since Solomon was raised there and knows what it is on the ground, he knows, I guess, where to where to where to do this and where to say this. Be careful, because we have uh, people, especially women, for some reason that are in prison waiting execution, usually by hanging or stoning, and they just refuse to uh, go back to Islam from whatever uh, See, that that's such a sadness to me, because what you here's what I care about your religion. I care what character it gives you and what ethics it gives you. Other than that, Richard, I don't care about your religion, whether you're Buddhist, Hindu, or whatever. Right. I mean... I hope it brings you success, and when I say success, not business success, but life success. And, but I do care about what character it gives you and what ethics it gives you. If you think about what I've described is that's how you interact with me. You follow me? Right, right, right. 
Yeah, so it's just an unaddressed question in America and most, well, in America, certainly, you know, freedom of religion, unalienable. What happens if my my religion says that I have to come attack you? Is it still an unalienable right? And I don't think it's been really addressed. I don't think it has either. And part of what I want to do is to teach people how to ask political candidates political questions. And by the way, I think that you should also ask, if someone's running for the school board, and they're Baptists, just making that up. Yeah. I think they should be asked about Sharia in our textbooks as well. That is, what I want to do is Shariaize, Islamicize the politics in America. That is, if you're not a Muslim, I want to know what you think about Islamic issues, Sharia issues. And if you're a Muslim, I sure want to think, of, I do want to know what you think about issues that deal with the Constitution, the laws of the land. <clears throat> I think these are important questions. And I also see that it is an important time that we can, in, during the election process, is that we can freely ask these questions. Right. Well, it seems to me that something that would make that a lot better is if people <clears throat> learn about the Islamic scriptures in detail. All That's three of them. Necessity. Most absolute people don't necessity. even know that there are three of them. Uh, and, and by the way, I advocate learning about Islam because it's useful and utilitarian. But I find the study of it fascinating. I mean, yeah. but then again, I'm an odd kind of guy. Well, yeah, I mean, historically, it's really interesting. And the fact that what Muhammad accomplished from being just a, you know, regular caravan manager was amazing. I mean, oh. if you apply that to anything constructive that you want to do, and if you can have that kind of success, it would be incredible. You could well, really I, do a lot of good. I've said to people many times, there are many things about Islam that I admire, which causes people to go, really? Yeah. yeah. For yeah. instance, I, I, I admire the way that Islam puts family in such a high position in society. Right. I think that a mother is indeed the best of people. So there, And also, Muslims tend to give more deference to the old. Yeah. At the age 77, I'm kind of keen on the idea. Yeah. Well, in a way, I mean, except for this little issue of treatment of women as being worth half a man or less, except for that, a lot of the ways that good Muslims are are instructed to treat their fellow Muslims, if they oh. just did the little detail of expanding that to everybody, it would be pretty good. Oh, no. And by the way, this is one of the reasons to convert and become a Muslim, is right. that one of the things in America today, we tend to be very isolated from each other. Yeah. And the web is not the connector we think it is. All those friends you have on Facebook, they will not be coming to your funeral or visiting you in the hospital. Yeah, well, the non-Muslims are missing their own ummah. They don't have it. Exactly. But if you join, then you have a new group you belong to. And they're very, they're, they're very good at helping each other. It's right. just that it doesn't come across that Kafir-Muslim borderline too well. Right, right. They're, yeah, they just... You know, unfortunately, that that's a barrier. But um, I don't know. I, if people go, uh, your your point about asking a candidate the same questions whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim is really good because mm -hmm. a lot of times people, you know, for me, I only thought of asking questions to this candidate I mentioned because she was making a, a really obvious. Uh, demonstration that she was a totally devoted Muslim, but that she would never think of making that part of government. And so, 
I thought of asking her, but your point that you should really ask everybody is great. Well, it's a, it's a totally acceptable question. Sharia is a set of laws, and I think it's essentially, if you're running for a political office, you're dealing with laws, rules, and regulations. So why not ask the question about this? Say, well, you shouldn't do that, Bill. See, I think it's an ideological free fire zone. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I mean, I love a robust debate. As yeah, a you're of talking fact, about discussion, not, yes. not firing a bit at any uh, When I use the word debate, I'm talking about it in its, in its best sense. That is a quiet reasoning without trying to call you names if I don't like your idea or insult you if I don't like your concepts. Right. So yeah, my, uh, my only objection to debates in general is that all, very rarely does do either side have any interest in finding out what's true. Their whole interest is in proving that the other person's wrong. Well, there is oh, that. They, right. But if you could have a debate like you're on the same team, say, well, what about this? And the other person says, hey, that's a pretty good idea. And I'm we're going to find that. out what's true. That would be I'm a good, good debate. That. that would be really good. Where you don't mind saying you're wrong. And by the way, I do not mind saying I'm wrong. One of, the, one of my favorite college professors who intensely affected the way I lecture yeah. I never lecture from other things, just bullet points of notes. I never read from a piece of paper that's dull. Right. Was that he could admit he was wrong. And it was, it was just refreshing to, I remember, he would come in, He would, it was a course in network synthesis, and he would say, where did I stop last? And he would just start working from memory. So you got to see him work the problem as it unfolded in his mind. And a couple of times he was like, you know, that's just not right. Hmm, I'll get back to you on that. Well, he had enormous believability. Do you follow That's, me? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, if you saw leaders who were w- willing to not only say they were wrong, but say, you know, thank you for showing me a better way of understanding that, that would be incredible. The whole world would change. By the way, I've been married for over 55 years, and one of the uh, things that we've learned, and we sort of laugh about it now, is we have if we have an argument, it's very brief now. But anyway... The, the way to resolve the argument is, you were right and I was wrong. See, it's not only you say that you were right, but you say, I was wrong and you were right. So we, yeah. we laugh about that sometimes because it's like, okay, I completely give up on the point. Well, right, and also you benefit if you find out where you were wrong and can change it. Well, one of the things that's happened now we're dealing with a personal married life is that since I was the oldest child, I tend to be alpha. She was an only child, so they, they tend to be alpha. So there was a considerable amount of headbutting that we had to do over a long period of time. Yeah. But we've sort of ironed all those out. And there are places where we, even if we don't agree, it's like, whatever, I can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, that's, wrong. that's a little microcosm of what would make a massive improvement in the world. <laughs> it is, isn't okay. it? Ah. Mm. So, when you have an election going on, like we do in the U.S., and there's elections all over the place right now, that Brazil has a big one that just got won by the populist uh, candidate that wants freedom and free market and firearms rights and all this stuff. That was incredible. He almost got killed, and he well, survived. Did he get stabbed or something? Yeah, right in a crowd. He was just like Kennedy went in an open convertible car you know this guy went out in a crowd of a lot of people and somebody worked their way through the crowd and stabbed him so that he wouldn't win if he was dead you know but he didn't die he almost died Mm. 
he got totally recovered, Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro, and he wants to totally change to a more, you know, like the American Constitution and, docu- and Declaration of Independence type government. And he just won. Good I'm not, for him. not sure whether he won his party or the whole election, but it was really amazing. So it's happening in other parts of the world. There's also a, a movement in Iran that I'm sure you're familiar with called Restart. Yes. Pretty interesting. By the way, Islam basically destroyed one of the world's great cultures. The Persians were a great civilization. Yeah. Islam completely, I mean, put the kibosh on that. Uh, There's always a sadness in my heart when I see what Iran is today to know what she was in her past. Yeah, it's not because they decided, oh, this is a better religion. It's because they got the choice either convert or die. They did get that choice. And uh, by the way, in Iran, there is a pushback. The youth despise the mullahs, and they do not like uh, Islam at all. So what they do is, the ways they push back are, these are sort of odd. One is they celebrate Valentine's Day, okay? Uh, The mullahs can't stand Valentine's Day because it speaks to everything they don't want a woman to be. Right. And the other one is, is they're very interested in Zoroastrianism, which was the original religion of Iran. Yeah, when or, they had Cyrus. I should the, say Persia, actually. Persia and Cyrus the Great was one of their famous leaders, right? Mm-hmm. I I would like to know a lot more about that culture. It, it sounds like it was really something amazing. Well, one of the things is that that's nice about what I do is I get to meet wonderful people, and one of the people that I've met is Annie Cyrus, who is an apostate from Islam. She was yeah. a child bride, and uh, so it's been wonderful meeting her. And, and other people like her. Now, she uh, went back to Zoroastrianism, right? From no. I recently huh? found out that she converted to Christianity. Oh, and she no did. One, and no one even tried to convert her. She just converted just herself. Converted her on her own. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I got to meet her thanks to you, and that was great. She was on the show, too. Oh, she was? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That she's, was a, she's a really great person and very courageous. Very yeah. courageous. And and Persia has a history that is very long and old, right? It goes way well, back. It was a great classical civilization. It was a great classical civilization. One of the things that, uh, one of the library, one of the great, Islam burned three great libraries. One in Alanda, which was a Buddhist library, and the other one was in Iran, well, it was Persia at the time, Persepolis. And then there was the Alexander burning. Right. So, anyway, that was, uh, but anyway, Annie Cyrus is a great person. Yeah, I totally agree. And and what survived? What did they not destroy that goes back into the old culture? Do you know? You know, I don't know. That You've asked now a fascinating question <clears throat> because there's always these little remnant. <clears throat> excuse me. There's always these little remnants that uh, exist, and it would be interesting to see what part of it, you know, sort of bled through. Yeah, because I know culture. some Actually, some yeah. of the really violent ones tore down statues and, and monuments and things like that, too, mm-hmm. not just books. So I, you were about to say something about what survived. I'm just curious as to what did survive. I do know that the business of carpet weaving survived, but that's about the only one that I know. They used to do, for instance, incredible miniature work. But I don't, I don't, I don't know what's left. I, I never really thought too much about the question. I was supposed to see Annie Cyrus this weekend, but I, she was ill and couldn't come. Oh, okay. 
So what about, has the language changed there? Is it Farsi was before and now both? It's still Farsi, but they use the uh, Arabic alphabet. Okay, interesting. So So that changes it. Well, Richard, there's something going on in the background. I'm afraid, uh, although this has been a very enjoyable conversation, I need to start wrapping this up. Yeah, we haven't even touched on what we wanted to talk about, have we? You want to take a minute and say something about that? Well, uh, let me let me say so. Oh, let me. Can I pitch my website just briefly? Yeah, I want you to. And, and you know, whatever minutes you've got left, look at your bullet points. Whatever you want to say would be great. Well, uh, let me. Well, since I'm, I go to my website, politicalislam.com. I've got videos. I've got newsletters. I've got books to sell. And as Richard would tell you, they're good books that are easy to understand. They are. I've read uh, them. Recommend all. And the other thing is, I want to wrap it up by saying that we should use the political process to our own advantage, to which we can start asking questions in the open forum of ideas and ask for answers. And if we don't get answers, sometimes not getting an answer is as important as getting one. So uh, the since we're so deep in politics now, I encourage people to become very involved in politics and not to set it aside and sort of say, oh, it doesn't make any difference. I may be moronic, m- romantic, but I think it's important for everybody to study the candidacy and vote and I think that we need to make the running for office a chance to where we can ask some questions about Islam as to what is what is really in the heart of the candidate who's running. Yeah. And so that's what I would say to that. Okay. That's great. I'm really glad that you were able to come over for a little while and um, hang on and we'll say goodbye in the break here. Okay. And you're one of my first, you're one of my favorite people to interview with. Yeah, it's mutual. I really enjoy it. And I was glad to, I'm glad to see your video because it gave me an excuse to ask you back. There you go. <laughs> I'll keep watching the videos. So, okay. Thanks a lot, Richard. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was fun. Talk to you soon. Okay, you guys. Um, Doug just alerted me that the picture's jumping around a little bit. I'm sorry about that. We don't know what's happening to it. Um, we'll try to figure that out before the next show. But I just wanted to let you know um, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Warner coming on our show again. He's been a frequent guest, and he was most helpful to me in in learning the really interesting historical and scriptural facts about Islam, um, because I really wanted to be educated on that and not just take the opinion of scholars and imams and stuff, but I wanted the opinion of Muhammad and Allah. And uh, that was a great service that Dr. Warner is doing with that. Uh, If you go to politicalislam.com, you'll find the same books that I enjoyed reading and that are all based on original scripture. They're not Dr. Warner's opinion or anything like that. They're they're really factual. They're straight from Muhammad, the most accurate that we've got in any case. Um, it was all written after Muhammad, but it's still considered in Islam to be the most accurate. And I think, you know, I also want to end by making it really clear that I really appreciate the Muslim people as much as anybody else Um some of my close friends who are Muslim I really look up to and hope that I can eventually have some of the great qualities that they have. It's I don't have a disagreement with any of these people at all. But with the scripture and the religion, which I've now read myself, it's not the opinion of somebody else, and it's saying God want, Allah, God wants everybody converted to Islam or they have to be killed or become a dhimmi or a slaver. That sort of thing. And I think there's a, an issue with that, that the the founders of 
America who were trying to set up the structure of a country that would keep everybody free to express them, their own speech and have their own religion and uh, do whatever they want as long as they weren't going out trying to hurt other people with it. Um, that was great. And they, they just did not think of, well, yeah, religion should be an unalienable right to have your own religion. But what if my religion says that I have to go out and convert or kill everybody to make God happy? Is that an unalienable right? I think it's it's a really important subject for everybody to really look at because the founders apparently didn't imagine that that could ever come up but it's come up because this is what the scriptures say you have to do if you're a good Muslim and if the candidates who are making it clear that they are Muslim and saying don't worry because religion is not connected to government that's not true in Islam. Right in this, in Muhammad's opinion, it's the same thing. And that you must fight to make the whole world Sharia compliant. You have to do that if you're a good Muslim. So that means no constitution, no bill of rights, no freedom of speech if you say anything insulting to um, the religion or Muhammad or Allah. You may have to be killed, you know, for your own good and everyone else's. And we need to kind of expand the understanding of, in a case of a religion that says you have to do that, wh- what do you do with freedom of religion, which is in the First Amendment? Nothing to do with saying anybody's bad. I could be born into Islam, or you could, or we, we could join it by just hearing about really peaceful, wonderful parts, and nothing about the, the hardcore parts you know, the little de- middle details about killing people who aren't Muslim. Um, but once you know about that, and say you're a member and you joined because you were born into it or you heard all these wonderful things, what do you do? Because whatever you call it, there's a source we came from that many of us, including me, feel is absolutely real. And everything you do on this physical dimension actually is in the realm of cause and effect. And you can't just go around killing people that leave your religion without having an effect, obviously on them, but also on you. So what do you do? Or if you're not a member of the religion, but you're in a country like America that guarantees freedom of religion and doesn't get into the details of, well, is it still free if you have to murder people to make God happy? I I wish there was a clear answer, but I don't see it. And I think eventually people have to get the consciousness to realize that anybody who's preaching that God wants you to commit murder or other crimes or things that are ultimately against yourself, if you do them to somebody else, you need to know that that's not exactly accurate. That we come from some place of unlimited love, It's not just a philosophy or religion. You can feel it to be true if your consciousness accesses a deep enough part of yourself because that's tied to where you came from and you can feel its nature. And this mechanism of falling for programming in yourself, regardless of what somebody else says, this programming that, you know, look, billions of people are following it right now. And the programming says, yeah, God is happy 
when you kill this other person because they have the wrong belief, we got to reach a, a point of consciousness where we say, well, that's really not true. And it's not an ego issue. It's not an issue of who's right or wrong. It's not an issue of whose religion is the best. Those are all distractions. It's the idea of what's real and what's true. And human beings in this time in history are so susceptible to any belief which justifies them being able to say, everybody else is wrong, everybody else is bad, they're subhuman, we can kill them without worrying about them, and God really likes that. And We, we have to reach a point of maturity that doesn't fall for that. And it might be dangerous in countries that are controlled by a religion that says, yes, everybody else is subhuman, only the people who are devoted followers of Islam need to be respected, loved, you know, helped and supported and all that. Everybody else just can be killed because God doesn't like them anyway. We got to reach a point of maturity that doesn't fall for that. It's really powerful. Don't underestimate its power because, in my opinion, any of us are subject to falling for things if we don't if, you know, it's just grace that per- prevents that for any of us. So if you have that, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim or any other religion or no religion or atheist or whatever, if you have that insight that you don't fall for hating other people, just your being like that is what spreads awareness. Even if you don't say a word, people feel what you are. And you're a valuable asset to the world if you're beyond thinking that your group is right and the other ones all have to be killed or enslaved or whatever, you know, or deceived. If you're beyond that, it's really fortunate that you're in the world and everybody around you and everybody in general is going to benefit from your presence. So I think that's really a great thing to remember um, and continue to live by and, and feel happy that you were given that and that you have the uh, privilege of being able to share it just by being who you are, not by trying to force anybody to change. Um, anyway, so thanks for being with us, and Dr. Warner couldn't stay too long, but I hope you enjoyed the discussion. It was an example of pretty much free speech, I would say. Um, we're going to put this up on platforms and hope that everybody will see it and appreciate it. Dr. Warner's going to share it, and I think preserving freedom of speech goes along with freedom of thought and allow yourself what science says is the right attitude which is science isn't settled that's all nonsense every single thing that science or beliefs say it needs to be questioned because if it's true you're questioning it it's not going to be threatening (laughs) it's still going to be true it's just that you're going to find out that it really is because you're going to test it and everything is subject to that. Every every belief that we have, and we have a lot of beliefs, if you really analyze that, your own thinking, there's so many things that we believe just because we've heard them our whole life. And the real spiritual attitude of, of investigating to find out what's ultimately real, and the scientific attitude, which is supposed to do the same thing, says question absolutely everything. So, um, anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you'll help us continue the free discussion, which should go on always, you know, respecting everybody's
point of view and just sharing it because we're all on the same team even if we got diverted and think we're enemies we're not really uh, underneath even the people who are doing the worst things in the world and there's some really bad stuff going on underneath their mountains of programming is the same kind of person as you and me and it's hard to recognize that but this division stuff has been in our programming too long and it's time to grow up enough to have a little bit deeper insight and then do something with that by who you are not necessarily forcing anybody else but just be who you are because that's radiating like the positive version of a cell tower every second your work is internal the outside work just looks like it's outside it all depends on the internal work so um, watch for more of our shows more of our free videos on all these channels as long as we can stay on them if we get kicked off Go to brighteon.com, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-O-N.com, which is what real video is becoming now uh, for copyright protection. They want a more unique name, and I, and I think that's great. Um, that platform is great for sp- free speech. I don't expect any censorship there. And on the mainstream uh, channels, platforms, we'll keep posting as long as we can. Uh, remember the Saturday afternoon news show that we do, Lost Arts Radio Live which is on all those platforms that we can still put it on as a live stream and as an archive. You can easily find it. And the uh, Planetary Healing Club, for people that decide that they really want to start focusing on this work in their own life, in a supportive environment, helping each other, learning forbidden information that is really pretty dangerous to say on the open public platforms. I'll refer to it, but in Planetary Healing Club meetings, we'll just talk about it. And I've been a scientist and consultant in those things for a long time. And this is a way that I'm just going to make myself available. And if I can be of use to you guys, uh, meet me there, lawstartsradio.com slash club. There's also the regular Sunday night show, free and public, with guests all the time. And even when we do the uh, live stream videos, the audio portion of it will be brought over to Blog Talk too. So the Blog Talk listeners will get all of it. And that's pretty much what we do. We prepare for that all week. And uh, I'm really grateful that you joined us, and we'll see you next time. Have a great week. Introducing Lost Arts Radio Live, our new Saturday late afternoon, early evening, one-hour live stream show. This new show precedes our Planetary Healing Club, which starts at 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific. The Planetary Healing Club, which is not free and open to the public, but you can join for a minimum donation of just $10 a month. Our new live stream show, which is free, starts Saturdays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern and 4.30 Pacific. It can be accessed by going to lostartsradio.com live. You can tune into our live stream from our Facebook page at facebook.com lostartsradio, from our YouTube channel at youtube.com lostartsradio, as well as both Periscope and Twitter, at Lost Arts Radio. You can ask questions during the show by using the chat function on YouTube or make a comment on Facebook during the live stream. Once again, that's Lost Arts Radio Live, Saturdays at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. As of January 2018, the Saturday Live Call-In Show is now an interactive video platform called the Planetary Healing Club. 
The cost is just a $10 minimum monthly donation automatically billed through your PayPal account. Sign up at lostartsradio.com slash club. The Planetary Healing Club is every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. You get your link to participate in the show upon signing up as a member. Those shows are also archived as well for club members. Listen to our new shows with guests every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. All Sunday shows with guests have archives freely available on our website at lostartsradio.com. You can also find them at blogtalkradio.com forward slash lostartsradio, as well as our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash the letter C forward slash lostartsradio, Mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash lostartsradio, and finally look us up under the podcast directory on iTunes. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lostartsradio, or on Twitter at Lost Arts Radio. Be sure to join the free Lost Arts Radio Facebook group as well. Just search for Lost Arts Radio group within Facebook. You can also join our forum on our website if you want to interact with other listeners. We also have links to all of the great independent musicians whose music we feature each week on Lost Arts Radio. When you do your Amazon shopping, Please use Amazon Smile program at smile.amazon.com. And when you choose Lost Arts Research Institute in Sedona, Arizona as your charity, Amazon will donate half a percent of whatever your order total is to Lost Arts Research Institute to help fund the building of the school and keep our radio show on the air. Please visit lostartsresearchinstitute.org for more information on the school we want to build. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter on our site under the Radio Show tab or right from the button on our Facebook page. Contact Richard at richard at lostartsradio.com or myself, Doug Diamond, at doug at lostartsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to Lost Arts Radio, and we'll see you again next week. Can twist and hands can 
ring like phones inside empty homes when nobody's there to hear. Until you hear me, dear. Can't really just open me wide. 